All right, please turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. I know that I had started uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians uh, last time I was here with you, but tonight, tonight we will be in Exodus. So I just thought I'd keep it in the Old Testament since tonight is a Thursday, and I have been very blessed by this passage the past couple of years, and I just wanted to share it with you all tonight uh, because I think it presents to us a beautiful reminder of what it took for us to have an intimate relationship with the holy, righteous creator of the universe. So think of this as an Old Testament Christmas message. All right, Exodus 33, we will be looking at verses 12 through 23. Exodus 33, 12 through 23. So as you turn there, and before I I read our passage for tonight, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we commit this time to you. Father, we bow before you, praying that you move in us through your Holy Spirit to understand your word and to glean wisdom from a passage out of a portion of the Bible that is so often neglected and so often not spent time in. Um, so, Father, we thank you. We love you. We ask that you're with um, our pastor, leader, uh, Pastor Dave, that you are with him and that you guide him through this process of healing. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so I'll begin with the reading of tonight's passage. Exodus 33, I hope you're there. Follow along with me, starting at verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that, we, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make All my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see me, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. That is the word of the Lord. So as a brief introduction, every year, every year about five million people around the world die from extreme heat and cold temperatures. Anywhere between 11 to 20% of all veterans experience post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Most kids today watch their first pornographic video by age 13 and some as early as eight. And then 84% of males and 57% of females ages 14 to 18 have already viewed pornography. Around 30 frontline workers, medical workers, die per month due to acquired infections while on the job. And then lastly, in Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, decided to offer sacrifices to the Lord and were immediately consumed by fire. Now, why do I mention these people and these circumstances? Because every single one of them, and I'm sure there are plenty more, have one thing in common. That one thing is unprotected exposure. They all experience something outside of the realm and conditions in which those things should have been experienced in the first place. Those who die in the extreme heat or cold lack the essential resources to protect themselves. The veterans who struggle with PTSD saw and did things that no human should ever have to see or have to do in order to survive. Children and teenagers who are shown violent graphic images of complete strangers acting on camera, because that's exactly what pornography is, a performance exploiting men and women and are being taught what sex is from those who are completely desacralizing the act itself. And then Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 decided that it was okay to go into the presence of the Lord on their own terms and were burned to death right where they stood. All of these experiences, all of these tragedies, all of these traumas, unprotected, unsanctioned, and we have been conditioned to love it. Our flesh loves a good old-fashioned spectacle. Some of our favorite movies are the ones with the most gore, most violence. Some of our favorite video games are those that make us feel the most powerful. Some of our favorite songs are the ones with the most cursing. Some of our favorite events are the ones where we can be the most scandalous and sinful. Gossip, recordings of fights, car crashes, documentaries exposing people and institutions. Mentioning that, you, do you know, do you have any idea how many Jeffrey Dahmer movies and shows have been made since his gruesome acts? Almost 30. Why? Why? Because we have been conditioned to love it. We love a good spectacle. When in reality, it's killing us. We have been traumatized and have tried to figure out our own way of dealing with that trauma. So we laugh when we hear words like sex and pornography and make jokes out of some of the most traumatizing events because we trained ourselves to cope with them in unprotected ways. You see, the thing about trauma is that its effects far outlast the events, the events that caused it. Trauma brings with it a sense of powerlessness. You experience that helplessness, that sense of being overwhelmed by events you couldn't control. And when people have been traumatized, they repeat these things over and over, trying to grasp what could not be understood and trying to carry what is unbearable. So why Exodus 33? Seems kind of random. 
What does Exodus 33 have to do with everything that I just mentioned, including trauma? Because Moses, Moses had just experienced a truly, a truly traumatic event. So let me briefly, hopefully, get us up to speed with where we're at in Exodus 33. If you're not familiar with the book of Exodus or what it entails, let me bring you up to speed, hopefully briefly. So God creates everything, including man. That man is given a commandment which he breaks and sends humanity in this perpetual downward spiral, morally, physically, and spiritually. God makes a promise several hundred years later with a man named Abram, who shortly after becomes Abraham and promises to bless him with offspring that are as numerous as the stars. An incredible promise, but there's a plot twist. He only has two sons, not a nation, not a nation as numerous as the stars. Well, not yet anyway. One of which is named Isaac. Isaac grows up, has twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob grows up and has 13 children with four different women. One daughter and 12 sons. One particular son is set apart from the rest and inevitably as all sibling rivalries go, the other sons, or maybe not all, but a few, the other sons plot to kill this brother of theirs, this particular son by the name of Joseph. A series of events happen that land Joseph in Egypt, which is a nation at this time abundant with food and resources, that of which Joseph is essentially in charge of distributing. Right before a national famine hits. It's no coincidence. It's just the good old-fashioned sovereignty of God. All of this is described in magnificent detail in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which brings us to both, uh, which brings us both to the people of God in Egypt and the second second book of the Bible, Exodus. At the opening of Exodus, we are introduced to a new Pharaoh, who is no longer this generous. Uh, ruler or king who took in Joseph and his brothers in the midst of dire circumstances. This new Pharaoh oppresses the people of God, Israel, and we're introduced to a new man by the name of Moses. Moses is called by God, leads God's people out of bondage through a series of 10 signs, also known as 10 plagues. Um, Fun fact, I teach uh, Genesis through judges here at the school to seventh graders. And I, ref- I refused to let them call them plagues because there were signs and wonders. There were acts of God that were proving himself to be, mirac- to be supreme, the supreme deity over every other false Egyptian God. And that's exactly what Jesus does when he comes onto the scene in the New Testament. They're called miracles because he is proclaiming with his actions, with his healings to be God. And so that's kind of a, a good... Uh, a different way of helping these students, these young believers, kind of understand God's role in creation, and that is supreme ruler. So God begins to work in his people. So the reason I refer to Moses as experiencing trauma is because he had just come down from Mount Sinai, a precious, a very precious time of fellowship with the God of the universe, the same God who rescued them out of their bondage and comes down to witness his people eating 
dancing, worshiping around something that they made with their own hands, the golden calf. Moses pleads with God to spare his people. He gets angry and God kills everyone that participated in the festivities. The journey continues and we arrive at a tired, brokenhearted, traumatized Moses who asks for more. So we begin there with point number one, the promise of the Lord. Then Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. So Moses here is expressing deep concern about how they will make it to the promised land now that God has said that he would not accompany them, after, especially after the golden calf incident. He says that he will send an angel. He will not be there leading them. So what is Moses' natural response? His natural response is that he appeals to his personal, intimate relationship with Yahweh as grounds for the conversation to follow. So in essence, he essentially says, God, this is how I know you. This is how you have revealed yourself to us so far, especially with me as your intercessor. This is how you have revealed yourself to me. Now I'm appealing to the, the, the nature of that relationship that I have with you to say what I'm about to say, to plead with you in the way that I plead with you. He essentially says, even more simply, God, I need to know this is what you've promised and it's hard, it's hard for me to see it right now. How many of us have been in that place where we ask, God, this is what you say in your word and I've been walking with you for a while now so I need to see something. You promised you promised, and I'm simply asking when it's going to come. I need to see something. I have just experienced a whirlwind of emotions, and I am deeply grieved. I need to see something. At this point in our lives, in our walks with Christ, it may be uncomfortable. But this, this place is a great place to be. This position, when you're crying out to God and praying to him, asking him to show you something is a great place to be. Why? Because at that point, you are completely dependent upon him and solely him. Your focus, your eyes are not blinded by worldly desires or worries. You're face to face with both your circumstances and with God and you have to make a decision. So how does God respond in these times? How does God respond to Moses here? In verse 14, he says, and he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Whenever we see God's presence and with his people, miraculous things happen. 
we spent quite a bit of time, my, uh, my class spent quite a bit of time kind of unpacking the story of Noah and the flood. For seventh graders, um, it was a lot to handle when we realize or when we read that God purposefully flooded the entire earth to remake it, to make it new. And one thing, if you didn't know already, Noah's name in Hebrew means rest. This is God's purpose in all of creation. Sabbath, fellowship, enjoying what God has accomplished and joining him in his plan. That's our purpose. Now for us, it may look different than it did for Adam and Eve and even for Noah and his family. But we still press on to that same goal and we are still hopeful for that long-awaited end. So for, for Moses, for some reason, this caused Moses to really reflect on the presence of the Lord so far. The role he has played in the rescue out of Egypt and what he says in the next point really brings that to the surface. So to recap point number one, Moses recalls God's favor to him and the people of Israel, and it is a great comfort to him. And he's having this conversation with God and reliving those promises because those are the only things that he can hold on to in this time of recovery from his trauma. So point number two, the possession of the Lord. Verse 15 says, then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. My brothers and sisters in the Lord, let me remind you that there is no place that can be prosperous or lush enough to satisfy if God is not there. Do not dare pray for a job, for a specific calling Wherever it may be, do not pray for that if you know that it is not God's will. It is the worst place to be. There's no place that can be prosperous or lush enough to satisfy if God is not there and no place that can be so deserted and impoverished as to discourage or defeat us if God is there. No matter the circumstances, no matter the environment, it does not matter how horrible it is if God is in the midst of it. And we see that as we reflect, uh, as we reflect on the heroes of the Old Testament. The presence of God is, is something we try to muster up a lot, especially in church culture. You got the right light scheme, maybe flick on a, a smoke machine, the subtle strumming of the guitar when the pastor's preaching or praying. Dim the lights just a little bit, maybe light a candle or two or 600. Although none of those things are inherently evil, we're missing the mark. That is not the presence of God. God is in us in the person of the Holy Spirit not a pillar of cloud or fire outside of us, but in us. 
Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit was going to come after him, and we see the absolute groundbreaking life change that that brought, that he brought. I love, I love this quote by Robert McShane where he, he emphasizes the, the confidence that we have as believers when we reflect on the fact that Christ himself is interceding for us. He is praying for us right now. And that quote is this, I quote, if I could hear Christ, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance does not make a difference. He is praying for me. Do you guys feel the brevity of that? Does that embolden you to simply speak without fear? To preach the gospel to your coworkers? Knowing or just having an idea that Christ, or just imagining that Christ was in the next room, praying for you as you walked into that office to witness to your coworker? Would you fear anything that the Son of God, the resurrected, glorified King, was in the next room? Yet distance does not make a difference. He is praying for you, and I pray that that encourages you. That is the presence of God that we feel and that we are guided by daily as redeemed, blood-bought believers. We need to remember that God is in us, guiding, protecting, and leading us through everything that we go through. The presence of God with and in his people is a mark, is the distinguishing factor for us that separates us from the rest of the world, the rest of humanity. And this is what Moses remembers This is what Moses reflects on as he thinks about the promises that God has made. The very next verse in verse 16, for how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? When Moses says, I and your people, this is the first time Moses identifies himself with the, people, with the people of Israel since before the golden calf. The golden calf episode back in chapter 32. And by doing this, he is binding his faith with theirs, which is bold. That's bold. Especially as we consider how he witnessed God's wrath burn yet he remained because of who Moses has come to know God to be. He's not afraid because he understands what God's presence means. My fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, this is quite possibly the greatest comfort to us, that God has set us apart to be his own possession. The creator of the universe marked forever, never never to be forsaken. As you probably have figured out by now, especially those of you who have come on Thursday nights, you know, you know how ungodly the surrounding nations were. 
with their gruesome acts, idolatrous debauchery, yet God still made a way for those foreigners to be included in the family of God. And all they had to do was essentially become Jewish. Take on God's commandments, obey, and you will be my people. It's beautiful to understand and to, to, to reflect on the fact that God made a way even for the people who weren't his chosen portion. And he does that now because as Gentiles, if we're not Jewish, we, are, we have been adopted. We have been grafted in. It was not for us, but God made a way through the person of his son, and that is beautiful. They would adopt their practices and essentially become adopted themselves. Now to be included in the family of God. So that's point number two for us. Moses pleads with God or pleads for God to lead them as a set apart people. So moving on to point number three, the presence of the Lord. Verse 17 says, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. Yahweh communicates to Moses that because of their relationship, we have this possibility opened up for us for Yahweh to reside among his people. It is not because Yahweh is attached to the hip to them or with them, but because Moses is a successful mediator, he is doing exactly what a priest is supposed to do. He has accomplished his duties as a priest and has made a connection possible between a holy, righteous God and a sinful, stiff-necked people. He has made a way. And then verse 18, stemming, reflecting on that relationship that he has established with the creator of the universe, the same God who rescued them out of Egypt through a series of signs and miracles. As he, is, he has just experienced quite possibly the equivalent of a man or as a woman cheating on her husband as soon as she said, I do. Because that's essentially what happened. God makes a covenant with his people through the giving of his law. And what, is, what, is, what, is the, what are the people doing when Moses returns? They are worshiping another God. And as he's reflecting on that, as he's trying to heal from that, through meditating on God's promises, he says something groundbreaking. He prays something groundbreaking in the next verse, verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Moses wants to know and experience God's essential personhood. Yet there are obvious, serious limits regarding how much humans can truly withstand. Now, at this point in biblical history, Moses has seen firsthand unbelievable, miraculous works of God, visible manifestations of God's glory. Let's recap a few. As, let's recap a few. The Lord as a burning bush, not consumed. 
the staff being turned into a snake and then back to a staff. The signs and miracles, the red Nile, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, the killing of the firstborn and the parting of the Red Sea. The Lord literally rains down manna, bread that tasted like honey from the heavens. This bread, this manna was both edible and sustainable. It's all they needed. The rock at Horeb, the defeat of Amalek, Mount Sinai, Moses actually sees a thunderous display of fire and lightning on top of a mountain and an audible voice. And then Aaron erects the golden calf And then Moses witnesses God's mercy. In chapter 33, Moses had reached the end of himself. In their idolatry and complaining, the people of Israel were becoming too much for their leader to bear. Facing overbearing demands and distress, Moses knew exactly what what he needed in order to endure in order to keep going. So the exhausted priest came before the Lord with a daring request and he prays, Lord, show me your glory. That Hebrew word for glory is kabod, meaning heavy or weight, weightiness. The reason why that's significant is because in ancient times, the greatness of a man was determined by the, by the weight of his assets. The word represented the greatness of a man in his surrounding community. The weight of his wealth determined the measure of the influence that he had. So just imagine an ancient king with this giant scale in front of him and you put every single ounce of his riches on it. That determined the amount of glory that he was worthy of, the praise that he was worthy of. All the gold, jewels, chariots, horses, everything, and placing it on a giant scale. And that weightiness of the wealth determined your glory. Now, let me ask you this can you imagine God's glory? Can you imagine the size of that scale? Can you imagine the amount of glory that is on that side? God's glory, we often talk about how we need to do things for God's glory. We need to glorify God in both our actions and our words. God's glory, his glory is essentially just his character. So when we do things for his glory, we are revealing who he is through our actions and through our words. So what exactly does it reveal to Moses about his character? We see that in verse 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. 
Yahweh had already, has already re- revealed his name to Moses in Exodus 3.14, where he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So in Old Testament theology, the name of God was another way to refer to the person of God himself. Here are some examples from other portions of scripture. In Isaiah 30, verse 27, it says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. And then in Proverbs 18, verse 10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. It is a glorious place to be, be around the name of the Lord. Now let's talk about holiness for a bit. Now with everything God has shown up until this point, remember, he spoke. He simply spoke and everything came into existence. That alone should attest to God's infinite weightiness or glory. Another characteristic of God is his holiness, his set-apartness, his otherness. He is unlike anyone or anything else. Glory and holiness are closely related in that holiness can be seen as an inward characteristic. It is an essential divine attribute, intimately related to who God is. Glory on the other hand, is the outward manifestation of that holiness, the radiant splendor of the presence of God. So when Moses asked to see the glory of God, God's reply is interesting and worthy of briefly noting here. He replies with, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses had asked for God to show him his glory, not goodness, but yet this is what God responds with. Yet the word goodness is used here. This indicates that the goodness of God is at the epicenter of his divine glory. His very essence, or to remain consistent with the description of glory, his goodness is his weightiness and internal substance. If you cut him open, goodness is what would pour out of him. And guess what? That's exactly what happened when Jesus was pierced on the cross. Jesus, on the cross, prayed to the Father saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is absolutely magnificent. All of those riveting events Moses saw with his own eyes were the acts of God, not God himself. They were the works of his hands, but not his face. Oftentimes we fall into the temptation of just seeking God's work. And yet we fail, we fall flat on our face because we don't ask to see his face. So Moses essentially says, you've been with us and I want you to continue being with us 
And if we look back at verse 15, actually, Moses says, don't give us the land if you're not going to be with us. I know you promised us a land flowing with milk and honey, but that means nothing if you're not with us. This was the promised land. And Moses is essentially saying that means nothing if you're not going before us. Moses is saying, we want you. I and your people, we want you. How else will the nations know that the Lord favors his people if you are not with us? How will we be a marked, a set-apart people if you are not with us? Moses is essentially praying for, almost demanding a greater vision of the glory of God. And by doing that, such as Moses receives, it leads us to greater worship of him. The knowledge of God always calls for an immediate response in the lives of those to whom he reveals himself. I would imagine that every single person in this room who claims to be a believer, when they came to the Lord, they couldn't do anything but respond. In a moment of complete and utter dependence upon him, you were made aware, by sovereign grace, you were made aware of who God truly is, and it begged, it demanded a response, and I pray that you responded to it adequately. But there's just one problem to what God, or to what Moses demands, and we see that in verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So if you're an avid reader, you have probably noticed that in Exodus 33, verse 11, one verse before the passage that we're going over tonight says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Now, before you're inclined, before you're inclined to, to dismiss the word of God as contradictory, notice that in verse nine of chapter 33, says, whenever Moses entered the, the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So the picture here is, the picture here is Moses standing face to face with the pillar of cloud, fellowshipping with the Lord. Because no man shall see his face and live. It's not a contradiction. We just need to be better readers. You cannot just assume that you can confidently stand before God outside of Christ and survive. But praise God that he provided a way for Moses to survive and us as well. But in the next point, let's see what exactly God did to protect Moses. So to recap point number three, Moses prays to experience God for who he truly is. Leads us to our next point, our last point for tonight, the protection of the Lord. I'm just going to read the rest of the passage here. Verse 21 says, Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I, when I was preparing for this study, um, I couldn't help but notice the use of rock and how Jesus considers, he, he claims to be the rock, the cornerstone. And I, it, it brought to mind this image of God, the holy righteous God coming near us and allowing us to be protected in the cleft of the rock. And there's just this beautiful picture of the gospel of what he has provided to us in Christ, that we are protected and that we are covered, which I will unpack as we uh, finish up here in a bit. So do you know, do you know what follows chapter 33 and 34? Where Moses is shown God's glory, the covenant is renewed, the broken tablets are restored, replaced, and Moses' face shines. Do you know what follows this? A very neglected portion of scripture. It is, this is what we get after this. We get a very detailed construction project of the tabernacle. God with us before God, the Holy Son Jesus with us. God has made a way for not just Moses, but for everyone else to experience his glory in the tabernacle. So as we conclude this uh, time in Exodus 33, let me just say a few things. The most arrogant thing anyone could believe is that they, they can just stroll into heaven outside of believing and accepting both what Christ has accomplished and what he commands. You see, the fact, going back to what I talked about earlier in the beginning, you see the fact that we desire to see something spectacular like Moses, something that'll keep our attention is because we're human. We are hardwired with an unquenchable appetite to see glory. Which is why I mentioned everything at the beginning. We love, we love what catches and keeps our attention. This is why megachurches are booming. They love it. We are not simply creatures of our environment. We are creatures shaped by what grabs our attention. If I am consumed with my job, my school, my technology, my reputation on social media, my life is going to reflect that because that's where all my attention goes. But guess what? Our attention as Christians should be constantly set on the grand spectacle. One glorious display of God's goodness, righteousness, justice, love, and long-suffering. The cross. The utter, the utter humiliation, shame, and ultimate glory that Jesus displayed hanging from a cross. The most excruciating, shameful type of death. Naked, bloodied and bruised, yet resurrected, glorified, perfected. God exposed himself 
died a slave's death so that anything evil we expose ourselves to can be conquered, trampled beneath our feet. So you, as blood-washed, born-again believers, are more than conquerors. You are co-heirs, co-rulers with the Son of God. That's miraculous. No longer exposed. No longer standing condemned in your own sins, but covered, protected by the blood of Jesus. So church, let us be ravished by that precious truth daily and be moved to share that with others, especially during this season. Never, never to be exposed to the dangerous presence of the Lord, uncovered, but now cloaked in righteousness. I know we finished earlier, earlier than you're used to, but that is what God has placed on my heart. This is why this portion of scripture has ministered to me in so many ways because I am constantly reminded every single day when I go walk into that class and teach these students about God's miraculous work in his chosen people, a stiff-necked people. And it pains me, it pains me that they only gave me Genesis through Judges because Judges ends on a very difficult note. They are to be ruled by a king and they experience life without one. But then one comes after Judges. You get Ruth, Ruth marries Boaz, Boaz and Ruth have Obed, Obed has Jesse, and Jesse has David. What a beautiful story of redemption that Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 10 mentions everything that happened here. The story of the Exodus, their complaining, their debauchery, their idolatry. He tells the Corinthian church that all of that was written for our instruction. Can you believe that? That God inspired his writers, his people to mention and detail everything that happened in a world far removed from us. In time, space, geography, culture, in so many different ways, yet Paul tells the Corinthian church and God through the hand of Paul, tells us that all of that was written for our instruction. And I just pray, I pray that as we begin another Bible in a year, that you walk into your biblical, your Bible reading with that in mind. The Torah is quite possibly the most neglected portion of Scripture for all of believers, for most believers, I would say. But if Paul, the Apostle Paul, mentions in his letter to the Corinthians that, that all of that is written for our instruction, we need to pay attention to it. Because in it, we see God's glory. In it, we see his mercy. In it, we see his long-suffering. And as 
privileged New Testament believers, we get to rejoice. Because as Pastor Dave often says, we are not, when we arrive here, we are not dragging lambs. We are not dragging unblemished animals to sacrifice daily, constantly, always. But we look to the grand spectacle. And so with that, I leave you with that and I just pray that you meditate on it and realize the incredible privileges that you have being in Christ. And let that motivate us to serve those around us and to not be afraid to use our words, the very speech that we are gifted with, to preach that very precious message. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we bow. We thank you for the incredible privilege of gathering here tonight publicly to worship you through the singing of song, through the hearing of your word, through the fellowship of the saints. Allow us to be ravished constantly by the truth of the gospel. That you sent your son, your holy son Jesus, to die a gruesome death. I can only imagine what those three days were like before the resurrection. Hopeless, confused, angry, I can imagine. But Father, you raised your son. And because of that, you have opened the door for us to be raised as well in him. And so, Father, we submit to you. We love you. We thank you. And it's in your precious son's name we ask all of these things. Amen.